So this morning, uh, we are um, entering into our kind of series. Uh, we started it last week on Jesus and money. And uh, we're excited. Last week, we talked about Rich. Kevin talked about Rich, the rich young ruler, right? Uh, this week, we're going to start off with a guy named Zach. For those of you who are not sure, he was a wee little man. <laughs> Climbed up in a sycamore tree. You know the song, For the Lord He Wanted to See. And as the Savior passed that way, he looked up in the tree and he said, well, we'll just read it. Okay, so um, in uh, the book of Luke, Luke chapter 19, it'll be on the screen and uh, you can turn there as well. Luke 19, it says this, that uh, he entered Jericho, that Jesus, and passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zach. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not, because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zach, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, that being the crowd, they all grumbled. He has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zach stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is the son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. And it's a fascinating story. And we, as humans, are captivated by stories. We love uh, the fact that we can maybe in some ways sense our story in the midst of theirs. Or we can catch a vision for a life that could be led I don't know if you guys read many uh, biographies. I just recently read uh, one called The Boys in the Boat. And uh, for those of you familiar with it, it's about the Washington University crew team. Fascinating. I won't go into all the details because you should read it. Um, But an amazing story of perseverance of guys who are going through great difficulty and great challenge and then ultimately succeeding because they realized that being a team was what made them most successful. A beautiful story. I also just recently finished a completely fictitious story called The Martian. How many of you have read that? Mark Watney is amazing. The dude is just killer. You should read the book. Anyhow, these stories, uh, they captivate us. And some of the stories that we read about are huge stories, like... Ones where you go, man, I I could never imagine myself in that kind of situation. But I am thoroughly convinced that it is actually the stories of people who live small but good lives that actually have the most profound impact. That if you were to track over your lifetime the number of people that have had a significant influence on you by just leading a small but really good life... I think we could probably talk for days about that. 
about people who motivated you or challenged you to live a particular way you're living, or people who at that season of life that was most challenging came and just said the right word at the right time, or walked with you through that circumstance you were going through. Um, People that made more tangible what it actually means to live a life that follows Christ. We could go through, again, story after story. And within the church, we have a weird name for this. We call it testimonies. I know that sounds odd, but we invite people to give a testimony or to share a portion, a small little part of our story, right? A way in which God moved or others were involved in God moving in our life. And so if we were to go back for a moment to this story of Zach, I think it's an interesting story of of testimonies, right? So can you imagine how this story would have gone? There's this man in a tree, and pretty much everyone hates him. Everyone in the story hates him. I mean, he is the town thief. He's a swindler, a traitor. He's hated by others because what he does is he takes taxes that he then is supposed to give to the authorities, but he gets kind of like payment on top of that. So what he does is he tells you it's... It's going to cost you this much, and then he just has to give back to the authority is less, and then he is able to pocket the rest. And so he's a swindler. He's just ripping them off of money. He's also seen as someone who works for the other side, even though he's a part of our community. And so Jesus comes along, and there's this hated swindler up in the tree. And he comes to him, and he says, hey, Zacchaeus, why don't you come down I'm going to go to your house today, you're going to make me a meal, we're going to hang out and have some fun time, right? And uh, that seems at first like, well, Jesus, that's a little imposing. I mean, we wouldn't do that in our culture, we wouldn't just invite ourselves over for dinner, but there's a lot of cultural dynamics at play, right? And Zacchaeus is just pumped that this is going to happen. Like, man, he's the rabbi, the teacher is going to come hang out at my house, this is going to be amazing, but... All the church folk get angry. All the church folk get angry. And they start saying, like, Jesus hangs out with the riffraff. He hangs out with the wrong crowd. He's always hanging out with the wrong people. Why does Jesus continue to do this? And, and the story goes on that while they're angry and, and, like, just bemoaning the fact that Jesus would hang out with them, Zacchaeus has this moment where his life changes in a way where he he sees the grace of God, his eyes have been opened, and he says, this grace, this change, this invitation will result in me living a completely different life from this point forward. And he shares a little bit of what that looks like. And that's how the story goes. And I started thinking, can you imagine what it would have been like at Temple next week? They show up and it's testimony time at Temple, right? Right? And so they get there, and uh, they're like, hey, does anyone have a story they want to share? Does anyone have a testimony of the way God's moving in, uh, in this city or this town? And uh, Jesus raises his hand. He gets up to the front, and he says, yes, uh, I want you to know this week, um, Zach trusted me. Well, I mean, God, but, well, you'll figure it out at some point, right? You'll understand the Trinity someday. But, yes, he, he trusted me. It was great. His life has changed, right? And everyone claps, because we love a good testimony. We love hearing good testimonies. We, we hear stories of someone who shared Christ with a friend, and we're like, yeah, that is amazing. Keep doing it. 
We hear stories of um, someone welcoming in a stranger and showing great hospitality, and we're like, yeah, man, clap. That's amazing. We hear stories of people feeding the poor or going on mission trips overseas, and, and we applaud those things, right? And then could you imagine Zacchaeus gets up, and he says, guys, my life changed this week in a dramatic way. And I just, I have to tell you, it totally rocked my world, and I decided I would give half of everything I own to the poor. And on top of that, anyone that I've cheated, I will repay four times, fourfold, if I cheated anyone. Because God has changed me, and His grace has made me a person of generosity. Now, my guess would be, that instead of like a round of applause at the end of the testimony, within the church, there would be all this like other type of rumbling, right? Like, can you believe Zacchaeus just flaunted his money in front of us? Can you believe he just told us he gives away half of everything he owns? I mean, come on. Is he trying to make me feel guilty that I don't give away half of what I own? Other people are thinking... Can you believe Zacchaeus can live off of half of what he owns? The dude's filthy rich. That's ridiculous. Right? And then other people are are thinking, like, how selfish. How much money does he really make? Right? And we go on and on. I can imagine this, like, man, if I made what Zacchaeus made, I would give more away too. Right? And we have all these different thoughts. Zach's just a jerk. Right? Like, who knows what we're thinking? But I guarantee someone in the crowd would have probably been thinking this. They would have said, man, Zach doesn't even know anything about the Bible. Because in Matthew 6, it says, you should never talk about that stuff. You should never talk about it. Here's the passage. It's the story of forbidden testimonies. Okay, It says, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus... When you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that what you do may be in secret. Then, he goes on to say, when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in synagogues and street corners, so that they may be seen by others. But when you pray, go into your room, shut the door, and pray to your Father who is in secret. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, but when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. You have this repetition, right? This, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Do it in secret. Don't pray out loud in public. Don't draw attention to yourself in prayer. Instead, in secret. When you fast, don't let people know you're fasting, but do it in secret, right? And it's the story of forbidden testimonies. Like, don't talk about these things. These are the things within the church that we tend not to want to talk about. But what's interesting about them is that we talk about most of them, right? So, like, when it comes to prayer, we're like, well, that one we kind of can scratch it because we pray in public all the time, even at sporting events, right? NASCAR, Daytona 500 or whatever, they pray at the beginning. We pray all the time. We pray in church services, weddings, list goes on and on. We pray in public and we go, well, that's not the point of what they're saying in this passage. And then we get to fasting. I'm pretty sure if we go through the scriptures, you'll notice 
And Esther would be a perfect example of a time when the people of Israel fasted together for three days. I, I think they were all aware that each other was fasting, right? It wasn't completely in secret. So it's like, well, we can kind of scrap that one too. But the one you can't scrap is your left hand knowing what your right hand's doing. You can't let people know how you give. I mean, that's just the way that I've always heard it been said. But I wonder if actually not sharing these stories of prayer and how it absolutely changes lives, maybe if we shared that a little more frequently, we'd actually give some people hope to pray again or that it still works. And maybe if we shared about fasting and the dramatic change that it can have in your life, and the way it causes you to pursue Christ or to deal with sin might cause other people to go, I should give that a try. And I wonder if us talking about generosity and actually hearing from people who did might actually motivate people to understand that money doesn't have to control your life. That you can be radically generous. That the giving that you Give the, the, the money that you send out can actually change people. That it can spur on mission, that it can do all these things. And I wonder if we've just taken a passage that we know, because I think we all do, that that's not what the passage is saying, right? The passage is saying, don't do it for the purpose of drawing attention. Don't worry about your motives. But if we do it in a way that actually invites people to see beautiful change, then I think it can actually be a good thing. So today, what we're going to do right now in this service is we're actually going to have two people share a forbidden story, right? We're going to have two people tell us a little bit about the left hand and the right hand might know a little bit, okay? It's going to happen, all right? What we did is we asked if two people would just simply come up and share and tell us, and, and this is two of many. We could have asked many people, but two. Tell us how you give, why you give, and then what effect it's having on your life. And then what I want to do is share a passage of Scripture that kind of follows some of that up and uh, then draws us at the end back to Zach. Okay? So, um, John and Eric, can we, yeah, the mic in the back. If you guys just want to come up, and then whatever order you guys want to go in is fine. I've asked both John and Eric uh, just to share with us, again, um, how they give, why they give, and what effect it's having on their life. Eric can go first. There's only one chair. It's all yours. <laughs> you want to share it? Um, okay, I'll go first. Uh, so, uh, my name's Eric. Um, we... Uh, we enjoy giving, obviously, to the church here, um, and we've done that for a long time. Obviously, we've been here for about 10 years, I think, um, and we, but we also uh, we give to Young Life in the south by northwest area. Been doing that, yeah, I love it, love Young Life, um, and then we also have a couple missionaries overseas that we give to, and um, so um, I think, uh, I guess you say why we give. Um, I think it, one thing is it kind of allows you to be a part of something bigger. Um, you can't do ministry everywhere all the time. I mean, different seasons of your life especially. We've got young kids, and it's hard to spend all your time doing things that you would really love to do. But 
when you're able to allocate resources to um, different ministries, uh, whether it's throughout the city or throughout the world or uh, in the church, then you kind of get to be a part of that, um, something that you couldn't normally do, and you get to send others to do what they're called to do. And uh, that's, that's um, you know, I mean, I guess the byproduct is it's kind of rewarding because, you, you know, it's like, hey, I was kind of allowed that person to do this ministry in, in Europe or to reach these kids at North Central or Lewis and Clark or wherever they're, wherever they're reaching out to kids. Um, and another thing is um, it's, uh, I think we do it because I want to acknowledge to God that it's his. Uh, it is already his, you know, like the world is his, everything in it is his. Um, but when you're taking what you've been given and giving some back, it's kind of like, you know, when you know someone's the best, but you're saying, hey, you're the best. Like, you're actually acknowledging it. It's, um, it does something to you um, more so than just believing it or saying, yeah, well, I know it's his. He doesn't need it. Well, he really doesn't need it. Um, I think sometimes we need it more. We need to give more than he needs uh, to get, get from us. Um, and uh, so what was the next thing? Just, oh, what has it done? Oh, yeah. Um, well, for me personally, um, it's been a huge faith builder um, in my life, uh, kind of, I'll explain a little bit, but, um, so I, I'm a real estate professional, so, and I, and so it's like you're self-employed, and I started when I was, like, we had a young kid, and, like, you know, debt, and no money, and it's, it's really hard when you're, like, irregular income, there's a lot of college students here, you're kind of broke, right, so it's hard, <laughs> like, you're, that's kind of how I live, I grew up with that, and, and so, um, you know, when you're, when you're faced with that, like, well, I don't really, I don't have the ability to give. Uh, I don't have the ability to give very much. But when you, when you stop and think about it, you know, you're really, it's really testing your faith. Like, do I really believe that he is the provider or is it all on me? And so, especially when times are kind of tight or tough. And, you know, I was, you know, praying through and there's many passages, you know, the woman with the two coins and that passage is me, the, the left hand and right hand. I don't really like talking about it or saying anything, you know, but, but, but for the right reasons, you know, for the, uh, the reason of your motives. That's, that's the key thing. But um, uh, I found that it, yeah, it was just kind of one of the things where like, do I really believe that God is the provider? And if so, prove it, you know, prove your faith. Um, by relinquishing it. It's hard to relinquish that when you you work hard, you earn it, or, you, or maybe you don't have a lot. But I'll tell you, I don't think it gets easier just if you make more money or you feel like you're in a better situation because it comes from your heart and it comes from your faith um, if you believe that he is, he is the provider. And then um, also I think it just kind of changes your perspective. It's like um, I've been in and out of shape a little bit in my life. Like, you know, like you're you work out real well, and you're, you're, you're doing good, and then you kind of get out of shape. When you're in shape, it kind of makes you want to work out more, right? It's kind of the same with giving. I think when you are, have the perspective of these resources are doing great things, it makes you want to give more, and it makes you want to manage your money better, save more, spend less on yourself, um, you know, do the things that where, as a manager of, that, of those resources, um, you would be commended, like, at your job, like, hey, great job. Uh, it makes you kind of want to do that more. So it sort of changes your perspective, and, and when you see the impact that it can have on, 
on the community. So that's it. Thanks, Eric. Do you guys just hear that in the back room? They're also talking about tithing. Uh, <laughs> so we can do better, right? Um, I'll be very brief, and it is my last Sunday, so I guess I've got nothing to lose. Um, <laughs> so I'll be, again, brief, but essentially what it boils down to for Jalen and I, um, kind of give you a, a brief picture of kind of our world and how we contribute in um, a little bit about our story. I was in the military for a few years while she was in medical school. We were married but lived apart in two different states. Had a deployment overseas, came back, and that's when we moved to Spokane. And through that time, we accumulated some student debt. You know who you are, and you have some, right? You don't have to raise your hand doing these kind of audiences, but some of us have debts, right? And that is probably the biggest hairy brown animal that is just weighing down on our back. And it's like, man. We've got $180,000 in school loans. Like, oh, what do you do with that? Do you tithe? Do we give some to the Lord? I mean, we've, we owe somebody money, essentially, with interest. Isn't that true? So our perspective is, you know what? We owe that, but also we owe some to our creator. And we, uh, we do that by just tithing our 10% of our net income, not gross, um, to the church here in New Community because we believe that this place is an instrument. If you'll read in the scriptures, tithing can be done in several ways. And given in the correct context back then, it could have been just food, animals, clothing, whatever, honey. He mentions beer, right? Don't bring like 18 packs of Natty Ice here on Sunday morning. Um, (laughs) But uh, we take it very seriously. It's one of the first things that we do is to write that check. Uh, Now, we're not perfect. There's months that we miss, but for those of you who have student debt or even whether that's car debt or mortgages, that is not an escape route for not tithing. It really isn't. Um, it's painful, but I think that pain leads to uh, growth and healing, really. And you're just not giving to a cosmic uh, mattress that goes underneath there or some type of uh, galactic Venmo app or something like that. You're not giving that way. It actually equips this community to plant, to uh, resource and uh, we've seen that come into fruition here in so many different ways. And so uh, I really just want to speak to the college students here. Um, your time, that could be your tithe as well. It's yours. Only you own it. Um, and it's yours to give. So uh, this church is grateful for that. But that's a little bit about our story. Again, we're not perfect. We missed some months here and there just because shoot, we forgot the checkbook. But we tend to make it up. So that's who we are. Um, the effect on me. Um, it helps us be more diligent and better stewards of God's resources that he's given us. So uh, that actually centers our marriage, knowing that we are collectively giving something together that we could keep this. We could spend more time on steep and cheap and get that awesome Martin Hardware, awesome fleece that costs buckets of money. But uh, we, we try not to. And that could be used elsewhere in so many greater ways. And uh, we're, again, not perfect. We've got a lot to learn, absolutely. But it has a huge effect, positive effect on our marriage. So I want to wrap up our time just uh, thinking through a few things based on uh, what they shared. And the first one is this. You'll, you'll notice that they uh, shared two different stories 
both about giving, but one who is directing all of their resources or 10% toward new community, and one that's saying we feel called to give to multiple um, people and places around the city and potentially around the world, right? So the first idea is this, that there is diversity of opinion among a community, and it is beautiful, okay? Two different stories, both different and yet both beautiful. Uh, I have often heard in the church, though, that there is a tendency for pastors, and this is why Kevin and I probably have baggage about church money and giving, uh, because they make this statement very similar to the one in Malachi, if you've read Malachi chapter 3. I know some of you didn't even know Malachi's in the Bible, that's okay. Malachi, Old Testament, chapter 3. We go to obscure places when we want to talk about tithing. It says this, Will man rob God, yet you are robbing me? But you say, how have we robbed, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, or the temple, that there may be food in my house. That's what God is saying to the people of Israel. And so what a lot of ministers love to do is they love to say, well, you can just swap the word temple for local church and call it good, right? There is, just so you're aware, no temple today that represents what it represented back then to the people of God, right? So what I would say is there's no organization or charity that's parallel to the uniqueness of the Old Testament temple. So you can't, in my opinion, use this particular passage to say, that everyone should give 10% of what they earn to the church. Okay, so you might ask, well, should I give all of my tithe to the church, right? Or in this particular place to new community? And I would say a qualified no. And here's what I mean, okay? And I'm going to put it up there so my words are not confused. Your gift is an act of personal worship to God in response to His grace. Your resources to God's work should be a conviction brought by prayer and conversation with the community, i.e. small group, to whom you make yourself accountable. However, if you consider Newcom your church, you should consider allocating a significant portion of your giving to the community where you invest and where others are investing in you. That's how I would answer the question. Because people have asked me that before. And I would answer it, Exactly this way, that you're called by God to give and be generous, but you can be generous in all kinds of different ways, one of which is giving to the church and to ministries all throughout our city, the ones listed in the bulletin, etc., etc. But the idea is that it should be a personal conviction at some level for you to be generous, to give. So, uh, I will say this, our family gives 10% to Newcom, right? So just so we're clear, just so you know, I receive a salary from here. I know some of you know that, others of you might not. I wish I could just work for free, but I'm not in a position to do that. So I do get paid by this community, okay? 10% of everything that I get in a check from this community comes right back to this community on Sundays. My wife and I committed to that idea over 18 years ago, and we have done it for 18 years, 10% to the church. That's how we've done it. Now, 
On top of that, we feel very committed to the idea of blessing other ministries um, like Young Life and Global Neighborhood and friends and individuals and missionaries we know. And that giving, our personal conviction again, we give on top of the 10 that we give to New Community. And that is something, again, that all of us can have a different opinion on. I say it to say that that's what we do, but I know other ministers that give zero to the church they work for, some that give 2%, 5%, whatever number, some that give far more than we give, right? And so you need to understand that there is great diversity and variety in the way that people give. Just like I think it's really important for us to recognize that there is great diversity and variety in our beliefs within this community. And this is why diversity is so important. It actually makes a community richer in so many ways. Let me give you an example. There are some in this room that are pro-life, and I know that there's others in this room that believe that it's a woman's choice. There are some in this room that are Republican, some Democrat, some libertarian, some don't even care. Okay? Some of you, I know, are for the death penalty. And I know others of you in this room are completely opposed to it. I know some are for gay marriage in this room. And I know there are others that are against it. I know some in this room that are for just war. And others that are completely for nonviolence or even further for pacifism. We exist in a very diverse community, but I actually believe that the health of the community is, is a, or a healthy community is a community that can coexist in grace. That we can make all of the main things, the main things, be passionate about Jesus, be passionate about living together in community, and have wildly different views about giving and all these other things I mentioned. So the first thing we have to recognize is that we're diverse and not everybody in this room is going to have the same opinion on tithing, giving, whether you even need to give tithe 10% at all, whether you just need to give a little bit, whether you need to give more. Point is, great diversity. Here's the second point, though. We can all agree on one thing, and I think that thing is generosity. So the very similar thread that... The similar thread is that they give, and that in their giving, they desire to live with generosity. Right? So that could be the thing that we say, this is something we can agree to, right? This is something we believe in. So I want to take you to a passage in First Timothy that I think will give this some context and we'll use this passage to kind of wrap up. First uh, Timothy six, seventeen to nineteen says this As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to give their hopes or to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. So there's a command, right? At this, the beginning of this passage that says that I charge you, or charge those who are rich, to actually be generous, and in doing so, take hold of the life that is truly life. It is uh, startling in our society, the statistics about giving. I'm sure that many of you have heard some of these statistics before, but only 5% of the U.S. tithes, that means gives 10% of their resources away, with 80% of Americans only giving away 2% of their income. That's just statistically across our nation. 
kind of the average. And in addition to that, there's a statistic that builds on it that says Christians only give 2.5% per capita at the current rate. But while during the Great Depression, we gave at a rate of 3.3% of what we brought in. It's startling if you think about it, the Great Depression and being more generous at a time when there was absolutely nothing and bread lines and, and people without work for very, very long to, to realize the enormous wealth of our nation. And it, it makes that statistic true, which tends to be that the more you have, the less you tend to give. But I would also argue that the church has, uh, for a long time, been pretty good at misappropriating funds as well. One particular statistic that I've shared before that is, uh, is pretty well, well known is that the total cost of Christian outreach in the United States averages $1.55 million for each and every newly baptized person. Which means this, that when you add up the salaries, the building costs, the parking the uh, programs that are run, the education for the staff or the seminary that they go to, you add that all up nationwide as the church. For every newly converted, baptized person, it averages out to 1.55 million per baptized person, right? Which means, I mean, this year our budget is a shade over 18 million. That's a joke, right? It's like a shade over 300,000, probably. Um, But these stats don't really get to the heart of the matter, right? They don't get to the heart of the matter. The heart of the matter is actually that we are called to be radically generous people. In fact, uh, N.T. Wright said, The kingdom that Jesus preached and lived was all about a glorious, uproarious, absurd generosity. That that's the kingdom that we are a part of, is this absurd generosity. You might ask the question, what am I supposed to give? And the answer is simply probably more than you're currently giving. I mean, even if you look at the tithe, the idea of 10%, Richard Foster said the tithe, or 10%, simply is not a sufficiently radical concept to embody the carefree unconcern for possessions that marks life in the kingdom of God. It's just not radical enough. It's not, it, it really in some ways, some would argue, is the bar that begins where we should consider our giving, right? All of this is to say that we all agree on one thing, and that is generosity. The final idea is this, that the center of our giving is actually God's generosity. That's the center of our giving, that The passage says that as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything, right? So set your hope on God who richly provides. Another passage goes on to say, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that by your poverty we might become rich. Another passage, you have been treated generously, so live generously. What the scriptures seem to suggest is that we are, when we are truly grateful for the grace that God bestows on us, that's when we find ourselves to be most generous. Just standing up here and telling you to give your resources or to steward them well or give a percentage of your income 
is to not really accomplish much, right? It won't do the trick because it never does the trick. What always is the only thing is the idea that generosity is a byproduct of us understanding the grace that we've received. We're generous because our God is generous. Over and over, if you, if you catch a vision for the overwhelmingly beautiful grace of God through Jesus Christ, that is the, the thing that transforms us from the inside out and causes us to be people who are generous. All right, The generosity is a natural overflow of gratitude for God's grace. Let me leave you with this, this quote. Tim Keller uh, recently said in one of his books, Often books and speakers tell Christians that they should help the needy because they have so much. That is, of course, quite true. Common sense tells us that. That if human beings are to live together on the planet, there should be a constant sharing of resources. But this approach is very limited in its motivating power. Ultimately, it produces guilt. It says, how selfish are you to eat steak and drive two cars when the rest of the world is starving? This creates great emotional conflicts in the hearts of Christians who hear such arguing. They feel guilty. But all sorts of defense mechanisms are engaged. Can I help it if I was born in this country? How will I really help anyone if I stop driving two cars? Don't I have the right to enjoy the fruits of my labor? Soon, with an anxious weariness, this is where some of you have been in this area of your life. We turn away from books or speakers who simply make us feel guilty about the needy. The Bible and Jesus does not use the guilt-producing motivation, yet it powerfully argues for the mercy or the ministry of mercy, the, the generosity. Mercy, giving, caring, meeting needs is spontaneous, super abounding love, which comes from an experience of the grace of God. Hear this the deeper the experience of the free grace of God, the more generous we must become. That is the grace that I believe Zacchaeus was living into. He shared that testimony simply because he was radically transformed. And uh, this morning, in closing, we're going we're gonna to take communion. And what I want to invite us to do is to remember the gracious gift and to recognize that in this gift that we are invited in his generosity to be equally generous. Let's pray.